I remember the first prototype meeting I went through, I literally almost jumped out the window because I had never been through this before. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why this company made a big bet with a huge launch with an expansive product line and influencers right from the beginning, how to identify amazing agencies to help you grow your business, and what this company did to sell out during their very first launch. Before we get into our show, I want to share a strategy some businesses are using to help manage cash flow during COVID-19. They're selling gift cards. Gift cards give customers a way to support you right now. We've seen some creative ways to market them, like selling gift cards at a discount, giving special offers for customers who redeem them in the future, and adding free gift cards to high-value cards as a bonus. As part of Shopify's response to COVID-19, gift cards are now available on all Shopify plans. So you can start selling them right away. For more information, visit shopify.com slash gift card. Today, I'm joined by Brian Berger from Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is a pioneer direct-to-consumer and a one-stop destination for men's essentials and was started in 2012 and based out in New York. Welcome, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so the idea behind this business all started due to a, a frustration that you've had with shopping. Tell us more about that. What was the, the problem that you were trying to solve? It was really specifically the problem of so- shopping for underwear and socks. I hated the experience of going to department stores and having to sift through a never-ending sea of product. Um, I was never able to find what I what I bought the last time and really liked. Um, and there was a whole bunch of things about it, in addition to those, that just felt really kind of broken and at odds with what should really be a convenient experience. Because, you know, guys typically buy things on a, you know, especially these kinds of things on a replenishment basis. And nobody was making it easy to do that. Um, and so to me, a light bulb went off at that moment of, you know, there's got to be a better way. And so we set out to, you know, reinvent men's basics. And, you know, a big part of that was customer experience driven. But then there was a obviously a very significant component that was product driven. Got it. Okay. So those two things, customer experience driven and product driven. I want to talk about that in a second. Um, but before we got we get there, you had this 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 problem that you you, you faced yourself. Did you know that others had this issue? Like how did you know that there was a demand or that there this problem is larger than yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I think entrepreneurs spend a lot of time trying to assess, you know, the market opportunity and whether or not there actually is a problem. Um, and for me, Uh, I would say, you know, I was solving for myself as a consumer and I'm not particularly high maintenance or low maintenance. I'm sort of right in the middle as it relates to like shopping and clothing and, you know, the degree to which I care about those things. Um, And so really just informally surveying a lot of guys. And what was particularly interesting was, you know, when you get into conversations with guys about their underwear and T-shirts and socks, they actually have a lot to say. And this was at a time when, you know, people were like, well, you're going to talk to me about my underwear, but it's sort of like you creep the door open and there's a lot of thoughts there with respect to not just the shopping experience, but also just what they love and don't love about the product that they are currently loyal to. Um, so there was a lot of that, you know, sort of informal kind of surveying, you know, peers, friends, family members, those kinds of things. And then we did some, I would say, light you know, more official market research where we sent 
you know, a survey out to say a hundred people who we were close to, and then we asked them to forward it on to 10 more people. So, you know, we got a decent number of responses just to test out certain things, but it was not, you know, there wasn't a ton of, you know, testing. I think we sort of believed in our, in our, in our gut and then validated by, you know, you know, information that we received from others that this was a pain point and that if you could solve for it, then you had a real opportunity. Um, and a big part of the, another big aspect of it was this notion of replenishment. You know, once, a, once there's loyalty, the process of replenishment should be really easy. And depart, buying stuff through a retailer or a department store just isn't. By, by design, those places are, you know, are engineered to always have new, ever-changing assortments of product. They're not, they don't get excited about having the same old thing over and over again. So that just results in a bad experience. Customers want to know, once you find something you like, you want to know you can go back and get it, get the exact same thing again and again, just like Starbucks, just like McDonald's, just like, you know, so, so we were able to sort of tap into that. Got it. So that's one, it sounds like one theme that you're hearing was around replenishment. Were there other kind of themes that surprised you during that early research, either formally or informally, that had a big impact on the direction of the business? I mean, just a lot of feel, just a lot of discussion around technical details and functionality, which was great because we were focusing on that. We're like, how do we mash up, you know, Lululemon and all the good things that they do for performance apparel and, 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 and Calvin Klein, who was like the 800 pound gorilla in, you know, boxer briefs and premium men's underwear. So how do you mash that up? And that was our, that was our product strategy. And, you know, what we found was that there was a huge appetite for product innovation and features and benefits that more directly addressed the customer experience. For example, undershirts that are a little longer, so they stay tucked in and a little more fitted so they don't bunch up. V-necks that sit, you know, below your butt, your collar button. So if you're wearing, you know, a dress shirt and the top button is unbuttoned, you don't see the t-shirt underneath it peeking out, things like that. Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier about how there were two kind of angles or two areas that you wanted to focus around, around customer experience and also product driven. And you mentioned that there's, there's, there's a lot of room for innovation, a lot of appetite for, for innovation in this space. Between those two things, when you first start a business, you know, those could be, could require lots of investment in both directions. Which one do you think that was more important to focus on at, at first? You know, I think they're equally important because we could have designed the best product on earth, but because we were coming to, because our go-to-market strategy was digital first, if we didn't design a customer experience that felt unique and interesting and compelling, it was going to be hard to get people to, to engage with our product, right? It's not like we were relying on Nordstrom to do it for us, right? So, uh, and on the flip side, um, we could design the best pro customer experience on earth, one-click ordering, whiz-bang fast, you know, all the things but if the product didn't deliver, then it would all be for nothing, right? Because we wouldn't be generating that, you know, good first impression and loyalty that is core to our business model. So we really, we really spend equal time on, on both things. Got it. Can you describe to me what that, that first kind of um, commercial, the, the first uh, attempt at putting something out commercially was? What did the experience, what, did, what was the experience like? What was the product? Yeah, you know, it was pretty intense because we, you know, this was before, you know, um, you were able to kickstart things and really, 
you know, um, advanced sell or beta test product, we effectively built a lot and invested in a lot of foundational things. So a website, a brand identity, and a, not only the product development, but the actual inventory itself. So we, we had made a pretty significant, you know, economic bet prior to having sold a single thing. And part of that decision was, should we focus on one product? Should we focus on a, 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 a handful of products? And we ended up choosing the latter strategy because we felt that if we want to maximize brand equity, we would need to tell the product story uh, across multiple products that it would reinforce what we were about from a product standpoint. And, and that, and that it was a bet, but it was a bet that paid off. We, we invested in, you know, in a, in a, in a real proper launch where we had PR, we had influencers, we had, you know, organic PR people we went out to just through our own networks. We, you know, leveraged friends and family and our, and our personal networks to, you know, virally market, um, you know, not only our site, but our, our social feeds, um, we did a major press push where we did death sides with editors, you know, it was a full on, you know, uh, process. And we also had some marketing, uh, some, we wanted to test some digital marketing so that we would have some of those initial metrics to help, you know, determine how we were going to build and grow that side of our business as well. Got it. Yeah. So this big bet, even before you sold a single thing, it's definitely a, a story that, that is counter to what you typically would hear about how to start a, a business, right? Especially when you are, or when it's a, it's a startup, like, like a brand like yours. So you mentioned that there is, there were, there was a, a big launch with PR influencers, um, a, a, a actual product line rather than just selling one product. And, you know, for everyone, for, for every one of you, there's a, a bunch of folks that did not make it, making this kind of big of a bet. What do you think that you guys got right, though, that allowed this big bet to pay off? Well, I think that we always thought about this as a brand and a bigger opportunity um, versus like, can we sell a specific product? I think a lot of what you see now and what you see in the DTC landscape, <clears throat> you see a lot of singular or, or, or highly focused product, you know, campaigns being executed really well on Instagram and growing meaningful businesses, but there really isn't much beyond that, right? It's just, you know, it's just, you know, really how, how quickly and how efficiently can we drive the sale of this one product for us? We, you know, we were looking at, you know, brands like Lululemon and Patagonia and Nike, you know, uh, that, that really, you know, earn the right to do other things over the course of time. And so we felt that in order to do that, in order to put our best foot forward there, we would need to make a bigger upfront bet because we didn't want to be seen as, oh, just a company that makes cool socks or, oh, just a company that makes cool underwear. We really wanted it to feel bigger than that in the consumer's mind and give ourselves the opportunity to do more. And you know, again, that was just a choice that we made. It's not necessarily one that, you know, is a one size fits all situation. 
Right. So the, the big piece of this was that you wanted to be able to tell this cohesive brand story. And I think this is um, an, an area that, that feels very kind of vague, I think, to a lot of entrepreneurs about how to build a brand. Can you talk to us about what that means to you? What does it mean to have a brand? When you, you mentioned like a Lululemon, like how do you build a, a brand like that? Well, it's multifaceted, right? It's, it's, it's a brand strategy. It's a narrative. It's a, um, it's a, it's a point of view. And I would, I would say that piece of it, we, we probably, um, spent the least amount of time on and we're actually spending a lot of time on it right now. We're coming to market with a sort of evolved brand strategy that will position Mac Weldon, the brand and why it's important for customers to associate with us, um, from an emotional perspective. Um, you know, there's an aesthetic piece of it. Like what does it look and feel like there is a, a, a product piece of it, which is what is the product strategy? Is it fashion? Is it technology and innovation? And so really nailing that and being very specific about that there's, you know, on product, you know, branding and marking, like how do we have these design signatures on the product that tie it all together so that when consumers are wearing the product, you know, there are certain things that are visible and notable and distinguishable to us. Um, you know, uh, so, so, so it's, so it's a series of things, um, that are tangible, right. Uh, how, you know, what the product is and what your approach is and how you brand, how you, you know, how you market it's, what is your point of view and what is your narrative? So, you know, it could be a sustainability narrative. It could be an innovation narrative, which is what we chose. It could be a, um, a altruistic one, one for one. You see, you know, Warby Parker is a you know, leader in the space. You know, they were very big on, you know, this one for one model. Um, so, you know, it's not all just sort of fluffy, subjective you know, things it's, you know, you, you know, there are very specific things when you get down to it. And the, the kind of investment that you're talking about in branding has, has a, has a, 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 a huge payoff, but also it can take longer than, than probably what a lot of people are thinking about when it's when I think about how should I spend my time? How do you know if you're headed in the right direction as you are making changes, as, as you are deciding elements of your brand, how do you know if it's actually giving you the results that you want? Well, I think there are things that you measure and look at day to day. You look at metrics like, you know, new customer conversion rates. And then you look at, you know, just to determine, you know, is it resonating? It's longer term metrics like repeat rates and repeat frequencies. Uh, are people buying more on, you know, in their, in each successive purchase? Uh, are they coming back? What does it take to get them back? Um, are they buying more of the same thing? Are they buying cross category? So there's a lot of those types of metrics you can do to sort of gauge the efficacy of your value proposition. Um, and then at the brand level, you know, there's, you know, there are things that you can do to track the awareness and consideration of your brand just by surveying, you know, uh, segments of the population. So, so those are two, you know, sort of two, two ways. And when you first launched, what were the, the products that you had on hand? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So we, we launched with underwear. So three, different styles of underwear, boxer brief, a trunk and a brief. We launched with t-shirts. We had a V-neck and a crew neck version of the t-shirts. We launched with socks uh, and we had like solid socks and pattern socks. 
And we launched with undershirts, V-neck and crew neck undershirts. So it was not a small assortment yeah. out of the gate. And, and it was scary. No, yeah. And then I can imagine it must have been a hectic process during the product development too, now that you had all these different lines you wanted to to launch with. Talk to us about that. What was the process like behind that first kind of round of product development for that that launch? It was really hard. And, and we, we, we were fortunate in that we... Um, through a, a a lot of shoe leather, ended up partnering with uh, uh, a person slash you know small agency that is uh, remains a long term uh, an integral partner of ours that really helped in that initial product development and their their whole way of working is they take you know um, uh, concepts from like the ideation phase all the way through the commercialization phase. And so everything from design development, uh, sourcing production, and ultimately, you know, landed goods in a warehouse. And so we were able to, through that process, um, really get to not only a very high quality of differentiated product, but we were able to have it delivered, you know, on time, on budget and without, without any issues, which is also critically important, right? If one thing goes wrong in those early days, it could be pretty catastrophic, right? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an amazing partnership for someone out there that is looking for a partnership like that. What would they even be searching for? What kind of agency or what kind of company would they search for if they needed someone to help them with this piece of it? You know, for hard, for soft goods and, and 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 hard goods like bags and accessories, there's there's many. Um, you know, there's there are many um, agencies out there that do kind of full package. You know, solutions for emerging brands and companies. You know, part of I think the entrepreneurial journey is like figuring out how you're going to get your product made if it's a product type of business, and. Um, and getting to the right place, I think, is a, a little bit of a predictor on how successful you're going to be because there's a lot out there, you know, and the choice isn't always obvious. Like we had choices to go and do this direct, which we do a lot of now, you know, more than 50 percent of our businesses, direct relationships that we have with, you know, uh, manufacturing partners. Uh, but in the early days, like obviously, you know, we wouldn't know where to go or how to get stuff sourced and you know, it would have been a much more labor intensive process, time intensive process than what we ultimately ended up with. Yeah. Now, when you are looking for either an agency like this or any other kind of partner, given your experience, you know, how do you vet who's going to be a good partner to work with? The best source for for anything, you know, whether it's a marketing agency or a, this type of an agency or, or, or tech related is just to call references. And, and the best kind of references are back channel ones where they don't know you're calling. So you know, find out who they partnered with, look on their website, do some LinkedIn searches, and then go and try and reach out to somebody to get a real honest perspective on how it all went. Mm, I like that. When, when you do hire an, an agency like the one that you worked with, what's your involvement where, especially since the, you, you mentioned that they, they helped tremendously during this entire process, what is your, your kind of involvement to make sure that it, it at the end of it, you have a deliverable that you expected? That's a great question. Um, and it really depends on, you know, if you're, if, if you're doing a photo shoot, for example, 
there's a process that you go through where you pull, you know, inspiration boards and swipe. And that's all really meant to, to help inform, you know, the end product that you're looking to get. And it's not dissimilar here where you're looking at fabrics, you're looking at trims, you're looking at design boards, which are just like CAD designs. And then you go through a prototyping process. First proto, second proto, third proto. I remember the first prototype meeting I went through, I literally almost jumped out the window because I had never been through this before. And what we what was presented to us was so far from a finished good. And there are just things you need to know. When you get prototypes, they're in available fabrics and yarns. They're using available trim colors. And you know what I mean? So it, it could look like a Raggedy Ann doll because of that and not because of anything else, right? So, um, you know, those are just the things that you learn. And then as you go through each iterative process, it gets closer and closer to what the end result will look like. But in product development specifically, there is a prototyping process. It's usually three or four rounds before you get to final, like this is what we're making. Got it. So there's kind of like stages to it that you can do your kind of due diligence and, and your, your own kind of QA along the way. Now, you had mentioned that a lot of your relationships now, is, like with manufacturers, are are direct. What are some of the kind of important lessons and skills that, that you learned, you had to learn in order to be able to, uh, like I mentioned, transform or shift half your your, your business, your, your your production now to having these direct relationships? What are some important things that others need to to learn in order to, to be able to execute this piece of it effectively? Hire great people with experience to do that vetting, right? Like I'm not you know, I've never managed those types of relationships in my background. Like we hired the head of design for Calvin Klein underwear. And over the course of time, he brought over members of his team. So they have pre-existing relationships. They had, you know, vetted at scale, you know, some of the best manufacturers and mills in some of the spaces that we play in. And they were able to form, forge and formulate those relationships. Hey, Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. Now, speaking of hiring, one thing you had told us was about how the hiring aggressively and building a team for the business you'll need tomorrow versus what you may need today is an important uh a distinction. If you need a resource, it's probably too late and you've left some opportunity on the table. Tell us more about that. Like why did you learn this lesson the hard way that you already noticed coming in? Tell us about your experience with that particular uh, line of thinking. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, the, 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 there's two things at play. One is you're always trying to be really efficient with your resources. So, you know, you're never looking to overstaff, at least we never were. Um, and then the other thing is that you know, there's this, you know, I think you have this kind of false perception that if and when you need somebody, you're just going to snap your fingers and, you know, in 60 days, you're going to have somebody sitting in a seat. And that's just not the way it works. You know, talent in this market for what we do is highly, highly, highly sought after. You've got to, you know, really, really hustle to get good people. And so when you need someone, when you really need someone, you're anywhere from 60 to 120 days with an earnest search to getting a high quality candidate in a seat. And then they're learning, you know, then they're ramp up and all the other things. And so my point is just that, like, 
be really honest about your hiring plans and what your needs are going to be and try and formulate a plan or at least get a process in place that you know you can activate on short order to get good people in because it's it's hard. How do you kind of expand as almost like this fog of war to know what's coming and what do you need next? Like how do you be how do you, how can you have more foresight into what areas that you might need to start hiring for today so that you have them ready in you know 3 months from now when you really need them? Well, I mean I like to think that in order for people to be effective in their job and also um, you know, feeling like they are uh, developing in terms of their career development, um, you really need like a 70-30 split of their time. So for example, if somebody's working at 100% capacity all the time, then they're likely going to burn out and they're likely not going to be able to expand their portfolio of skills beyond whatever that one thing is. And so I think as you look around at your team, if you've got a bunch of people working at hundred percent, then that should be a pretty good alarm bell to say it's time to, you know, um, maybe add some resources here so that we can give people some capacity to think about other aspects of the business to help show whether or not they could be effective in evolving their skill set. And to just really get the best out of people. So, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is that, you know, companies like early stage companies are riddled with like single points of failure, like one person doing one job that's critically important to the company. And I think that it's always important to look around as to who those people are and what functions they're serving and what you would do if they disappeared one day. And think about what a succession plan looks like for those roles. And for folks out there that are hiring for the first time, what are some of the early lessons that, that you learn about hiring? Um, it's really important and it's really hard. And it's something that you should take very seriously. Um, and by that, I mean having a real process in place. One that involves multiple people screening for very specific but different things. So maybe one person's screening for skill set maybe one person screening for culture and values and maybe one person is screening for uh some other attribute um you know sort of uh, uh things that are going to make somebody successful in a startup attributes like tenacity and self-starting and things like that make sure you have a real plan going into it make sure you have a real process for getting all the information aggregated as you move somebody through the process and I'm a huge fan of giving some sort of project or test or something where you can either actually test somebody's skill set or competency or just get a sense for their ability to like synthesize information and to present it back in a clear and cohesive way. Just learn so much in that process. And it sort of takes the takes the takes the uh, subjectivity out of it. Like I liked that person or we had a great conversation or we grew up in the same town. Those are things that are, you know, they matter, but they're not really important. And they, they tend to carry too much of a weight in the hiring process. Makes sense. And once someone is hired, talk to us about what you've learned about onboarding. How do you make sure that a, a new hire is able to hit the ground running? Yeah. I mean, that's an area that we've made enormous strides in. Um, you know, I think the first impression is really important. Um, so, you know, making sure that that person, uh, and that hiring manager has a 30, 60, 90 day, like high level game plan for that person. 
making sure that the person's schedule is full of meetings for the first whatever week or so of their onboarding so that they're getting to meet, not only get to meet people from the standpoint of like assimilating them into the company, but also they're learning who the, you know, key cross-functional partners uh, are for them. And then just more, you know, kind of culturally, you know, we do this thing where you have a lunch buddy your first day and, you know, that person is from a different department and they take you out to lunch and, and do that. So, you know, having everything ready, being really buttoned up about it, not treating it casually, you know, don't have the person start at nine o'clock on a Monday when you're going to be digging out of your emails, make it 1030 or whatever time you're going to be coming up for air and really over-invest in that process is very important. Yeah, definitely get the seriousness of what you're talking about. I think for a lot of people hiring is just about kind of fly by to see your pants. It's just like trying to piece it all together as the, the person joins the company and then plan just, you know, one day at a time. But yeah, you, you, you clearly, you have clearly uh, explained with the importance of having that all outlined way beforehand. Now I want to talk about the, so you, you mentioned that there was this, this big launch with uh, a few product lines. What happened after the launch? Like once that launch was done, like how were you able to continue the momentum of the, the, the brand and the business and the, the, the attention? Oh man, that was really scary because the first fear was like, are we going to sell anything? We have, an, we have a warehouse full of inventory that costs us a lot of money. Then that quickly flipped to, oh no, we're going to sell out. We've got all this demand that we've generated. How are we going to, you know, how are we going to meet that demand? And can, now we're going to buy more inventory. And what does that sort of, you know, flywheel look like? And so, you know, it's just a series of escalating, um, you know, calculated risks that you're taking. But in a consumer business, you can't grow, you can't, you can't make you, you cannot make it work if you're not prepared to, you know, own the product to meet the demand. And 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 in our world, in the DTC or the e-com world, it's particularly stressful because you don't really have any visibility into the demand. The demand can come as a function of a really successful Facebook campaign, and then it could be gone. It could just go away. It's not like a traditional business that's sold in a department store that knows what its purchase orders look like, you know, 80% of its demand is accounted for before a purchase order is placed. And then maybe you buy a little extra just for opportunistic things. This is different. Yeah. So talk, how do you de-risk that when demand can just go away? It's very hard to do. So you can optimize your supply chain to the best you can. And it really is, you know, some of the companies that have had a lot of success have supply chains that are very responsive and very flexible, and they're able to get back into product in a very short period of time. So they don't have to they don't have to uh, forecast as much. Um, in our case, we have some natural benefits to our product category in that there isn't a whole lot of seasonality uh, or fashion risk, or you know, or or or, or um, uh, skew diversification. So, um, you know, what we have is evergreen. So if we over invest, you know, we just sell it in the next period, right? Like, it's not like it's a ski jacket. And if you don't sell it all by February, you're going to be marking it down into the abyss. Right. So, you know, it's not a one size fits all type of answer, 
But I think that being as data driven as you can be and really trying to shorten up the supply chain as much as you can without taking on risk, those are all ways to, you know, to do it. Yeah, in in the opposite direction, where demand for a particular channel that was performing well just just dries up for some reason, what's the what's the response? I think that this happens a lot to to a lot of listeners out there, where something just might be working for them, and all of a sudden it stops working. Like a Facebook campaign, for example, just stops working. What's the what's the kind of response at a higher level to to deal with all of a sudden a channel just kind of disappearing? You know, you have to figure out alternative ways to try and make it work. There are obviously other ways of distributing product if need be. If it's a seasonal product, you can decide whether or not you want to put it out into you know, a discount channel or sell it through a third party, uh, maybe cut a deal with a retailer um, that isn't going to compete with you and your channel. Um, maybe you want to you know, say, hey, let's just donate the inventory. We, uh, this is a great example. I mean, we have uh, Matt, this is a really good example. We, everybody who made masks is now sitting on hordes of masks, right? Because demand for masks is virtually gone. So what do you do? So, you know, we did something where we had people at the Javits Center, um, you know, handing out masks to newly vaccinated um, uh, New Yorkers, you know, several weeks ago when the mask mandates were still in place and you know, it, it wasn't where we are now. Like that was kind of a cool, like kind of PR strategy, customer acquisition strategy. You know, you can donate them to countries or places where they're not as far along against fighting, you know, what's going on. So, so there are things you can do, maybe generate some marketing, you know, off of it. But I think if you have a core fundamental distribution problem, like the ads that you're using to drive your core business are no longer working. I think that's a, that's a bigger problem and requires, you know, a real strategy to fix. Yeah, so it sounds like some creativity is is required whenever that that does happen, and so this launch that you had that that led to pretty much uh, you said selling out of your your production line. What 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 pieces of it do you think were the biggest factors along this this uh, this launch? I think a lot of people are are also doing these uh, these big launches either for the first time or or you know product line launches what do you think were some of the biggest factors that that you got right that had a big impact on being able to sell out i think that in addition to more traditional pr like a pr agency setting up meetings with editors for us to go out and introduce the brand and showcase the product was uh, our um hustling and getting the brand and the story in front of editors that don't necessarily subscribe to a, to a traditional PR type of approach. And it was really those, um, those editorial features that really moved the needle for us in the launch period. But what it also did was it created content now that was going to live on an evergreen basis uh, about the brand. So when, it, when somebody writes a, an article about you and then somebody searches Google for Mac Weldon, now they're seeing a third-party endorsement of us. And that really helps make the uh, marketing more efficient, right? Because you have, you know, hopefully a higher conversion rate now that somebody's seeing a validation of your brand. Mm. And after that, that that launch, what was the area of focus once the once that was done? Because you had mentioned a lot of the the the, the stuff you had in the warehouse was was all selling out, and wasn't the next area of focus to produce more to to focus the doubling down the marketing? What was next? 
Yeah, I think it was, you know, really making sure the supply chain was going to be able to uh, deliver for us. And then also um, the other piece was um, really proving out the marketing strategy, right? Can we demonstrate that we can cost effectively acquire customers um, through paid channels. Okay, so proving out the the marketing strategy. Tell us more about that. Like, what was the the attempt? What was the the strategy here to to acquire customers through paid channels? Yeah. So one of the first hires we made was somebody who really had a lot of expertise in not only customer acquisition but retention. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to build out case studies to showcase that we can we can spend a budget that would hopefully grow. Um, you know, across, uh, mainly it was Facebook and search, um, to get customers in and then demonstrate that those customers exhibited a certain behavior over a reasonable period of time, you know, starting to prove out this like customer unit economic equation, spend X to get a customer. The contribution of that customer on the first order is this. The equation is positive, negative, or neutral, and then all subsequent transactions by that customer that didn't have a marketing cost associated with them are that then adding to the profitability. Like we were trying to tell that story because we were going to be you know setting out to fundraise, and we knew that that was going to be an important question that we had to sort of demonstrate for investors. And now you mentioned that there was this focus on, on retention, right? Not just getting that customer for the first time, but how often do they come back and buy more? Now, when you when you when you took this approach of of differentiating between kind of retention and that first time customer, are there just different types of customers that are more likely to return, or they're just different? Or there is there a different marketing approach to to get a customer to come back and repeat purchase? Um, well, there are different type of customers for sure, but I mean, at scale, you're just, you're, you're looking at averages. So, you know, now we segment and target different types of customers in different ways. Um, but at that point in time, we were just, you know, looking to demonstrate that we could do it at a reasonable level of scale. And when you look back on it, what, what seemed to work? What was working to retain a customer? You know, I think the product is a big part of that story. Um, you know, they have to obviously like what they previously bought, but like we're dealing with guys. So, we, you know, there has to be some sort of a nudge to get people to, you know, to shop. And so, you know, really compelling, you know, email marketing with thoughtful subject lines and great creative, really highlighting the features and benefits, um, really straight to the point. You know, that was really our strategy and that it worked worked quite well. And then over time, we developed more of a lifecycle email approach where we're now, in addition to like mass customer marketing about product and new product launches, we're doing much more tailored messaging to different customer segments. So a customer you know, who's 30 days out from their first order is getting a certain type of messaging flow than say maybe a repeat customer, a repeat loyal customer that's in the highest tier of our loyalty program. And one thing you also mentioned to us was that one of the key factors in your success was your ability to to remain disciplined and to stay focused, especially early on. And you said here that there's so many opportunities to lose your way in, in every area of your business, from product to marketing to people. And especially, again, as an early stage business, your most precious resource is time and capital. Anything that takes you off of 
looking at those two things puts the entire thing at risk. So talk to us about that. I think I think the idea of focus is important, but it's sometimes hard for folks to identify is this actually in focus or not. So what's your what's your approach to identifying whether I am staying focused, like being honest and truthful to say, yes, I am being disciplined. I am being focused uh, versus not. So I think in the, I think with respect to that, it's really, you know, um, it's with respect to time. It's really just a function of making sure that product projects uh, are well defined and teams are very clear on what the objective is so that and how it's going to be measured so that you know, you're not spinning your wheels in search of an objective that isn't what is in line with the strategy. Um, you know, and capital, same thing. It's sort of like really trying to have your arms around what things cost and what their, you know, ROI looks like before you're, you know, charging down the path, right? Because oftentimes it can be too late. I mean, I think with respect to marketing, you know, digital marketing and things of that nature, you know, things can ask, costs can escalate really fast. So you have to really have controls over like what you're, how you're defining success and then really making sure that you have visibility into that on a relatively real time basis. Now I want to talk about the the website. So you've been in business for almost a decade now. So I'm assuming the site has evolved a bunch of times along the way. Talk to us about some of the big changes that you've made to to the to the website that have had the biggest difference or, or most impactful differences to new customers and and conversions. Well, we we replatformed to Shopify. So that was a big change. We went from you know essentially you know hosting and maintaining our own you know, kind of e-commerce, you know, code base to, to Shopify, which was a uh, pretty bumpy transition uh, that was, had less to do with Shopify and more to do with just how the transition was managed. Uh, but now that we're there and we're comfortable and settled and we've got real pros working on our platform, it's been fantastic. And it's really enabled us to focus on the things that matter to our business, like what the customer experience, the digital customer experience is and providing a best-in-class checkout flow and analytics and integration of apps and all that good stuff. Um, so, you know, so, so that, and in terms of like what are the most important things that drive customer acquisition or conversion, I mean, you know, starts with speed, really. We spent a lot of time in the early days of Shopify, like really trying to optimize for speed, site speed. Um, they can take for granted how important that is. And so that was a, that was a pretty big needle mover for us. Um, you know, and then there's just other feature driven things, you know, how you lay out the product detail pages, the imagery that you use, search functionality, um, how you organize the nav, those kinds of things. Yeah. You mentioned that the importance of this digital customer experience. What are you looking at when you are looking to change a site to improve the digital customer experience? How do you measure something like that? Well, we A-B test everything. So, you know, for making, well, not everything, but important things. For making a change, we look to A-B test to understand whether or not the test is you know, the same, better or worse than the control. Yeah. Have there been any changes recently that, that you have tested that have had a, a big lift? Uh, well, we recently added search, um, which was a really big, um, 
you know, upgrade for us um, where we um, integrated uh, a third party application uh, that is, uh, I think, a big, important, you know, Shopify app called Al- I think it's called Algolia. Um, so we were able to integrate like a really good search app, you know, as we've grown the product line, having that there has been really, you know, positive, um, in terms of like discovery. And then the other thing uh, that we recently did was we really pretty much re- re- totally reorganized our nav in a much more intuitive way. So customers are able to find, you know, products that they may not fully associate with us. Right. Um, just due to the fact that we have a better nav. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, you mentioned Algolia as an app. Are there any other apps that you are you know, big fans of or that you rely on to, to keep the website or the business running? I mean, we're, we're, we're very happy customers of uh, happy returns, uh, happy customer, happy returns. Um, you know, it's really made our uh, reverse logistics and returns workflow like so much more streamlined. We previously had a custom app built for returns that was really complicated and over-engineered and something that we were spending a lot of time on. And so happy returns and that smooth integration has not only delivered on a, a better technical experience, it's also resulted in a much better customer experience and it's you know, saving us money as well. Awesome. Anything else? Um, those are two that come to mind that really relate specifically to Shopify. Um, you know, so, you know, we use Looker for analytics. We use Snowplow for data. We use, you know, we use a tool. We use something called Tulio for, for merchandise planning. Awesome. Yeah, definitely a, a data intensive business, right? That you're looking very closely at data. And, you know, have there been any findings when you're looking at data that would surprise you that just wouldn't reveal themselves elsewhere? Just to give people an idea of how much of a story that data can provide. Do you have any examples of things that have come out of just analyzing your data that just wouldn't appear from, you know, a qualitative observation? There are some things like we'll, we have a loyalty program that has certain like spend thresholds associated with it. And um, I think that we generally have the belief that um, some of the tiers of the loyalty program were driving um, behavior, like customers would spend to get to that level. Um, and that if we were to remove that level, that like interim level, would our, would our average order value go down, right? Because customers weren't reaching, but they, they no longer had an incentive to reach. But the other sort of, the, the, the sort of counter thought was like, do customers even know about that middle tier? Like, is it even part of their consideration? And so it's great to be able to have the data to test that and understand, well, if we remove this feature, our average order value is going to go down or are they going to stay the same or potentially go up? Because that feature is applying a discount that may not even be understood by the consumer at the time when they're filling their card up. So, so, so that's an area where like, we're able to test and understand what the impact is. And in that particular case, we learned that it didn't really have a big impact. And in fact, we were, you know, giving people a benefit that we weren't, we weren't really getting any credit for. Mm. 
Yeah, so it sounds like sometimes data can tell a story, but also bring up more questions that that you you now need to answer. Always. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. So MacWalden.com is a website, and I'll leave you this last question. What do you think has been the biggest lesson that you or the company has learned over the past year that has had a, uh, has had an impact on the direction of your business moving forward? Well, what we've learned is how much we can do um, in a resource constrained environment, like. Not necessarily a resource-constrained environment, but like we faced enormous adversity in a sense that like we were all of a sudden all working remotely and we couldn't meet to do creative things or product reviews or all the things that we have historically done. Um, but we were able to not only adapt, but also thrive during that time and thrive in the business, thrive in a, in a sense that we were able to meet our customers where they are or where they were um, in a very sort of honest and authentic way. Um, and so I think that's really great because, you know, everybody now knows what is possible, even when our hands are somewhat tied, right? Like how do you, how do you execute a great, you know, marketing campaign when you can't enter the studio and do a new shoot? Well, you go into the archive and you find assets that, you know, meet the objective and then you have a really great editor come and stitch it all together, you know, and you do it all remotely and you put it out into the market and it, and it works, you know, that that is a huge confidence booster to the team. So now when you have a budget and you can go to a studio, how much more potential is there? Or maybe you realize that, Hey, you don't need to spend that kind of money to get a great result. Awesome. Amazing. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your experience and advice, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.